Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 489. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great story today. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, Indigo Blue by Rachel K. Jones. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. All those years ago talking about Star Wars and then she was a little 12-year-old girl with her fingers ready to record the radio shows. <laughs> that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up is the main fiction and it is Indigo Blue by Rachel K. Jones. Originally published in Shimmer magazine, Rachel K. Jones grew up in various cities across Europe and North America, picked up and mostly forgot six languages and acquired several degrees in the arts and sciences. She now writes speculative fiction in Athens, Georgia. Contrary to rumours, she's probably not a secret android. Rachel's fiction has appeared in dozens of venues, including Lightspeed, Beneath the Sky, Strange Horizons, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Rachel K. Jones. This story is narrated by Jen Rhodes. Jen Rhodes is a geeky Texas girl, a voice talent for hire, and co-host of the Abnormally podcast. Abnormally is a sci-fi fantasy geek chat hosted by women that focuses on everything from literature, films and television shows to games, conventions and cosplay. Warning, may cause sudden bouts of squee. Abnormally is recommended for the giggly, active, cool chicks with a healthy sense of humour. Giggly, giggly, active, cool dudes are also welcome. I still gotta go. I still, I still gotta listen. I'm not cool. You can find out normally in or on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Zoom, maybe called Zoom, and at normallypodcast.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Indigo Blue by Rachel K. Jones. Over the Shuttleport ticket line, Migrating orison birds roosted in twos and tens and hundreds on the skylight before lifting and wheeling east toward the distant winter nesting grounds. Lucy thought glowfall on indigo must look something like those flashing blue wings refracting the sunlight, but she might never find out, because far up in the shuttleport line, someone else had bought the last ticket to the planet. The last glowing sales counter sign winked out. It was one thing to sell out a concert or a handball game, but Indigo only orbited close enough to Violet for travel once every 12 years. Miss it, and you might never get there. Job offers expired. People expired. Over that kind of time, ellipses became periods. If you're smart, you bought a ticket early, long before the pass. Nobody knew anticipation like those with tickets to Indigo. It was a bet you made with yourself that you would still want to go when the next pass happened, that you wouldn't be in love or pregnant or dead from alcohol poisoning. It was self-predestination. Buying a ticket early was also the only way to get there for most people. Lucy couldn't afford to miss the pass, so she unlocked her cycle and caught the next ferry to the shuttle port. Through her headphones, a baritone saxophone unwound the bluesy opening bars of the song Justin loved. She had a promise to keep to an old friend she'd never met, a man whose small kindness 
had made every last one of her 462 remaining days alive worth paying gladly. Her handheld's alarm buzzed. Lucy opened the tin in her pocket and took today's stay alive. 461. Lucy and Justin went back ten years, long before the stay alives and her illness, to the time she thought she would hit it big on the indie music scene. One summer, she rounded up her poetry notebook and scraps of chords and recorded her own album in the capsule apartment in Port Darwin, borrowing pillows and blankets from all the neighbors to soundproof the closet. The album flopped on Violet. Lucy junked her recording gear and forgot about her music until three years later, when far away, her single Indigo Blue hit the Lenore Top 500 list on Indigo. She put half her royalties toward a bottle of fine brandy that tasted like smoke, which she drank one night with the help of her boyfriend Derek and his two roommates. In the morning, hungover and smelling of sex and sweat, like a real rock star, she spent the rest on the ticket to Indigo. It wasn't cheap, relatively speaking, because there were only two years out from the last pass, and demand was low. If you wanted to make the hop, you had to plan years ahead or else tickets would sell out or get too expensive. Still, it cost her the difference between a capsule apartment and a spacious flat on the docks. At 33, she was the only one in her graduating class still living in a dump like that. Her next album didn't sell, not on Indigo or anywhere, and her mic gathered dust bunnies under the bed. One morning, after plucking three gray hairs from her scalp, Lucy called the courier service and asked to go full-time. Her mother and Derek badgered her about the cheap capsule apartment. Lucy explained she'd like the neighbors, the way all the kitchen smells converged through the open windows in the evening. When Lucy thought about her future on Violet, all roads ran straight and smooth and relentlessly unbending, a dull march through the usual stops on the way to death, wonderless and savorless. Then three years after Indigo Blue, Justin's letter hit her email, bounced around the sun via relay satellites, time-stamped 2.35 a.m. Lucy didn't know what that meant in indigo time. Days passed faster here, just like years did. The planet ran on hummingbird time, making a whole orbit in 12 old Earth years to Violet's 14. Justin confessed he didn't usually write to foreign musicians like this. I don't even know if this will reach you, but I had to tell you, your music got me through some tough times this year. He'd driven clicks and clicks after work each day to tend to a mother with dementia. Everything was so far flung on Indigo, he had only music for company, and he got home too late to see his young daughters. It was lonely and relentless, and he was grateful for the company her voice brought. Lucy seized on Justin's letter like a rope in a storm. No one had ever reflected her weariness so precisely. He attached a picture of his backyard. A great droopy tree dripped shining water into puddles in the dark. Where the droplets touched ground, they shone blue. The ripples stood out like stacked halos. You sing like you grew up here, he said. It takes me back to childhood, to glowfall games in the rain. When he spoke of his home, it sounded like a fairy tale. Lake Radiance? Fiddler's Leap? Iridescent rain falling slantways down the mountainside, glittering like broken glass. They began riding back and forth almost daily. I drive a harvester in the biofuel colony, wrote Justin. The hours are long, especially in the cold and wet, but it's necessary work. It pays well, and the views are incredible. I'm a courier. I deliver to all the islands, rain or shine, Lucy answered. Mostly shine. I can listen to music and sing and get lots of fresh air. I might be the only courier on Violet with all the fairy schedules memorized. The emails came at all hours, always syncopated. Good mornings and good nights shuffled and dealt out randomly. Justin loved her pictures of sunrise. On Indigo, it always rained. Sometimes during winter, the clouds would break up a little, and they'd glimpse scattershot stars, a moon or two and sometimes the red, faraway sun. But it was rare. Not that it's dark here, Justin added. It's not at all. There's the glowfall and the symbiotes, and I think, anyway, it's better than you get with just stars. 
How would you know? asked Lucy. And he didn't answer. But the next day, she got a photo of the great threaded net strung street to street over his hometown. Glow vapor condensed to starry blue droplets, lighting up the winding alien street, the incomprehensible signs, the faces grinning beneath clear umbrellas. Businesses closed early on Violet, due to the electricity ration, and Lucy just missed her last drop-off at the end of the workday, thanks to a late ferry. Lucy's molars pulsed. Somewhere far away, another shuttle launched from the island. Its white smoke drew a line up to the sky. Violet, swinging on a thread in space. For three months, the ships would come and go, ferrying people between worlds, exchanging goods that couldn't endure the low-energy transfer orbit pipeline. For a couple of months after that, shuttle travel would taper off as the trip grew riskier, more fuel-consumptive, harder on life support, until the pass ended and Indigo's orbit pulled too far ahead to catch anymore. Then the 12-year counter would start over. 33 became 45. Justin's kids would be adults, maybe married. His sickly old cat would be dead. Lucy would probably still be a courier, skirting the edge of poverty to pay for her stay alives. In the morning, Lucy called to apologize to her boss. Arn was a kind man, patient with her. Lucy had worked for him since before she got sick. The customers had come to trust her discretion, and some requested her by name, so Arn cut her a lot of slack. Lucy, you know I like you, but you can't be late like this. You've been slipping lately. This is the third time this month you've gone off grid while on duty. What's going on? Lucy swallowed back the truth because hunting for tickets was her private business. And it didn't matter because she couldn't get another ticket to go to Indigo anyway. Not after she'd lost the one she bought with her royalties. So why bother? I just lost track of time. It won't happen again. I'm sorry. Arn sighed, and the handheld made it sound like typhoon winds tearing at water. I mean it, Lucy. It costs me whenever you're late. You know I like you, but next time you're out. Lucy thanked him and hung up. A message from Justin came through on the handheld. Let's dump our whole schedule. When I see you next week, let's just spend the whole trip getting drunk and then drunk singing across the fire pit in my backyard. It was an old joke. Truth was, they'd planned her itinerary to Indigo over and over for years now. They'd filled it past the point of practicality, but it didn't matter, because half the fun was the dreaming, the planning, the imagining road trips that only ever played out in their minds. You could do that with a friend you might never meet. You had to. Let's go to Lake Radiance and dive for fungus blossoms if they're in season, Lucy answered. And remember, I promised to watch your daughter's dance. On her apartment wall, Lucy had a huge street map of the greater Darcy Island chain, all 14 islands linked by ferries and bridges, her best routes traced in blue pencil. She knew those streets very, very well. Anything their customers wanted, she could deliver. And if you had the money, there was always someone selling. This is really happening, isn't it? said Justin. Fair warning, I might cry. It's okay if you do, Lucy answered. We'll just cry together. They'd cried together before. Something made possible by distance that you could cry without shame and know that far away, somebody understood. Most people didn't know Lucy was sick, thanks to the stay-alives. There had been a few weeks of fatigue, a nasty green bruise on her shin that wouldn't heal, and a trip to the doctor for some blood work. Lucy was scrolling through pictures from Justin's biofuel colony on Indigo when the doctor gave her the diagnosis. He explained mitochondria to her, how her body was built on an ancient partnership between some single-cell organisms, but there had been a quarrel, a divorce. And now it would kill her. She nodded, eyes fixed on the handheld like a guiding star. A thread stretched all the way to indigo. The doctor scribbled the prescriptions for the stay alives. I'm starting you on a replacement therapy. These are expensive, but you need to take one every day. For how long? The rest of your life. He tore off the sheet and handed it to her. It's very important that you don't skip them or reduce the dosage. If you're going to skip, you might as well not take any at all. The disease will come back and we might not be able to stop it. 
You're lucky we caught it so early. And that was that. Or it would have been, except for the price of the medicine. It came from indigo, a byproduct of the symbiotes. And like all things imported on the 12-year cycle, it only got more expensive between passes. Just one of the pills cost more than Lucy made in a day. People held bake sales and cycle races for you when you lost your hair and puked your guts out in a bucket. But if you didn't look sick at all, if you got on your cycle the day of your diagnosis, rode 20 clicks to the pharmacy, emptied your savings for a three-month supply of stay-alives, and rode home young and strong and whole of body, well, no one had any pity for a woman like that. People didn't really donate to the sick. They paid you to perform your sickness. Justin texted her furiously in the weeks following her diagnosis, although she hadn't told him anything. Are you okay? he asked, and asked again. Lucy demurred. She didn't want to cry with him over this. On Indigo, at least, she wasn't sick. Whatever it is, I'm here for you, okay? he said, and somehow that eased the thick, sticky pressure in her throat. In the end, she only told her boyfriend Derek. When he finally left, two years later, broke from the price of keeping her alive, it was because of her ticket to Indigo. Just sail the damn thing, he said near the end. It's like you don't want to live. Lucy tried to say why mere survival wasn't enough, that she needed to write those impossible itineraries and believe in a perfect day. Justin's favorite tea shop, smelling every blend on the shelf, smoked teas and dried teas and fresh teas wet in their wrappers. Picking one to have on the porch with Renza, Justin's wife, while the Michael Blossoms opened and sang in the evening gloom. But you can't do those things if you're dead, Derek pointed out. And for that, Lucy had no answer except the wordless, struggling rage of Orison birds, pinned in the snare while the flock flew west without them. Lucy counted pills and Derek stopped speaking to her. Justin sent her a video clip of his youngest daughter asleep with her cat their drool iridescent against the pillow. I haven't heard from you in a while, said Lucy, and the time lapse stretched out so long she knew he'd paused to consider it before answering. It's been hard here lately, he said. Renza miscarried last week. She typed and deleted a bunch of replies and finally sent, Damn. It occurred to her that he curated his life too that the Justin in her head was a mosaic fitted from the pieces he gave her and what she decoded from the length of his pauses. By the time Derek left, Lucy's music had shuffled into the corners of her life to lyrics scribbled from smoke-shaped dreams right after the alarm went off, measures hummed between the ringing of the fairy bells. On weekends, she dusted off her old mic and synthesizer and tapped rhythms in 9-8 time. It was easier with Derek gone. She tried out Indigo Blue again. She made a remix for Justin. I really like this version, said Justin. The space between measures, how the pauses carry weight, like a good conversation. Tell me you'll sing this when you visit during the pass. Okay, Lucy told him. I promise. That was the day she wrote her cycle to visit Sage the first time. After Arne chewed her out, Lucy took the ferry to Traverse Island to see Sage again. Lucy could have married Sage, if not for his doze addiction. He had a voice like a foghorn, strong and melancholy. When he sang, you could feel it in your bones and teeth and behind your eyes. She'd couriered doze for Sage's dealer a few years back, and she'd taken a shine to Sage. One day, she stayed late to fix his broken handheld. They ordered pink radish noodles, shared some rice wine, watched a documentary on Orison Birds on the History Channel. He fell asleep on her arm, soaking her sleeve in drool. But she didn't mind. Sage made his living scalping tickets to Indigo every 12 years, buying them cheap and spinning the profits on enough doughs to stay high until the next pass. When Lucy sold her ticket to Sage after Derek left, Sage gave her the friend rate because he liked her and because she told him about the stay alives. He nodded understanding what it was like to live for your next dose. 
Now Lucy sat on empty banana chip wrappers on his couch and worked up the nerve to ask for her tickets back. Sage rubbed his shaking hands one over the other, wave-like. He looked twelve years older when he came down, like he'd gone to Indigo and back. Come on, Luce, I can't just give tickets away. Not now. His dose supply was running dangerously low so close to the pass. She held within her ten years of pining for a friend who sustained her with mutual daydreams and photos of his backyard. Hope glowed under her breastbone, fragile and terrible. Sage, if you do this for me, I swear on the bones of dead old earth I'll make it worth your while. Got a deal going down on Indigo? Lucy shook her head. No, just seeing an old friend. Sage nudged her thigh with his socked foot. A long way to go for a friend. She swatted at him. You don't get it. It's like, ever gotten homesick for a place you've never been? Distance is what you make of it. He unrolled a flat canvas bag from his pocket and pinched out some doughs. The grains oxidized green to black on his fingers. He rolled it under his gum line, tongue creasing the spot thoughtfully. The best I can do is one way. You're on your own getting home before the pass ends, and it's going to cost you. It'll be unfair, after what I bought your round trip for, but that's the best I can do. It's still going to piss off the lady I'm holding it for. Lucy knocked Sage over with a hug. Thanks, Sage. I owe you big time. He returned the hug awkwardly, because she'd never hugged him before. Where are you going to get the money? She was going to lie. She meant to lie but something in her face must have given it away, because suddenly Sage sobbed into his elbow. Damn you, Lucy, you're broke as me. You only have one thing worth any money. She forced a smile because she hated to see him cry like that. I'll make it work. Somehow. You'll die without your meds. It's not like I have much of a life anyway, said Lucy. Her voice broke because saying it aloud made it feel real. Another year? And then what? What can I really do on Violet with that kind of time? At least I can see Indigo once. At least I can say that much. Are you even coming home? Sage's chin was wet and snotty. For the second time, Lucy chose the truth. I don't know, Sage. I really don't. When she sold her ticket after Derek left, Lucy turned most of the money into meds and rent and sacks of rice, her half-hearted nod to responsibility. But for the price of one day's dose, she splurged on an indigo clock that mounted on her cycle. It converted orbits and planetary rotations and let her select between local time zones. On long trips between the islands, she liked to wonder what Justin and his family were doing. Sleeping while Lucy peeled her sunburned shoulders beneath her sarong having glowed tea for breakfast while she ate spiced curd for dinner. The best times were when their days synced, and they emailed back and forth as quickly as distance would allow, minutes-long gaps which shrank as the past drew near, until it was almost like talking in real time. Lucy told him about the vast sandbars on Violet, stretching out into the ocean, and how it was sunny almost year-round, except when the tides brought in lashing storms that reshaped the beaches, sucking sand from one place and carrying it to others. And there were the ferries, and everyone rode cycles, and it took forever to get anywhere because you had to use your own two legs. The cities were extremely dense. You could make a living hauling goods from island to island. At night, everyone lit candles and lamps to drive back the dark, because biofuel came from Indigo via transport orbit pipeline, and electricity was expensive, and you wanted to keep your monthly ration for charging your handheld or your refrigerator. Sometimes a fire broke out, and people died in their sleep because it spread so fast in close dry quarters. Lucy's uncle died like that, from smoke inhalation, and ever since, she slept with the window open, even on stormy nights when the rain came in. Justin told her about how on Indigo it was always wet and the sun rarely broke the clouds and whenever it did, they declared a holiday and the schools closed early and the neighbors cooked together over an open fire that sizzled and hissed in the lingering drizzle. Violet had been terraformed by the seed ships of ancient earth 
but indigo life was hybrid, indigenous glowfall symbiotic with the imports. Old earth trees grew huge in the continuous rain, colonized by glow to photosynthesize even in dim daylight. Those who grew up in glowfall never caught the flu. In his pictures, the whites of Justin's eyes shimmered iridescent when the light was dim. The glow even entered their saliva. On indigo, you could spit stars on the pavement. Once, Lucy raided her market's tiny import section for indigo food. Dried algaes and fungi and powdered glow tea stocked for homesick immigrants. She cooked them at home with recipes found online with too many substitutions. The resulting stew smelled like mildew. The glow tea Justin raved about was tepid grayish lumps bobbing around in souring milk. She snapped a picture for him. You actually eat this stuff? Well, I think you have to taste it on indigo firsthand, he said. You can't eat dead glow and expect to like it. See for yourself when you get here. To pay Sage, Lucy sold all but three weeks of pills, just enough to get her there. And after that, well, she'd only have a few days planet-side to find a ticket home. If she missed the window, she'd make her way on Indigo, with the cash saved from the return ticket, at least until her days ran out. Maybe her drugs would be cheaper at their place of manufacture. Or perhaps the meds were a luxury in a place where people didn't even get the flu. Lucy figured nobody's mitochondria rebelled on indigo. The morning of the shuttle launch to indigo, she snapped a picture of sunrise for Justin. She bought savory yogurt with pineapple from a street vendor at Port Jekyll, and iced coffee at the shuttle port on Traverse. For good measure, she picked up some fresh coffee beans for Renza and some rice candy for Justin's daughters. The morning air clung hot and sticky, but Lucy wore long sleeves because it was spring on indigo. She took her stay alive with the dregs of the coffee and locked up her cycle. The clock on the handlebar said it was morning in indigo. Lucy snapped a photo of her locked cycle and sent it to Sage. If I'm not back before the pass ends in three weeks, my cycle's yours. And help yourself to anything in my capsule apartment. It's a load of junk, except for the synthesizer. Keys inside the clock. She snapped off the indigo clock's plastic cover and left her key there wondering if she would ever touch it again. On the shuttle, as she watched the planet fall away, Lucy thought this was the closest she would ever come to time travel. She was vibrating when they landed, long after the shuttle's engine coughed its last and died. All tiredness and aches of the trip fell away. He was near, somewhere out beyond the tinted windows waiting to pick her up. Lucy skipped down the runway, stretched the kinks out of her limbs, and breathed in indigo, thick and heavy as a damp towel. The walk from the airstrip took them under the open sky. It was evening, and the sky was all roiling clouds, gold where the sun touched it, blue at the edges. A huge bronze plate piled with eddies and cloud banks. She felt light on her toes. Then they were in the airport itself, and she saw him. The real him, Justin in the flesh for the first time. His pictures resembled him the way a brother might, close but not the same. Real him had physics. He held his arms just so and stood like this, his own way and not another. Justin? After all this time, it didn't do to assume that she was anything but a stranger to him but he grinned so huge that he couldn't possibly be anyone else. And when he said her name, suddenly it was okay, and she ducked beneath the rope to get to him. They fell into one of those long, awkward hugs that are really a thousand hugs never given at all. Hugs don't expire, she thought. He smelled like unfamiliar soap. It had a spicy edge, like chai. In all those years, she'd never thought to imagine what he smelled like. Are you tired? Hungry? How was the trip? Justin grabbed for her bag and she let him. Suddenly, she was bone weary. I feel like I could sleep for days. Lucy followed him through the shuttle port to a walkway leading outdoors. Justin twitched his waterproof hood up and she imitated him, trying hard not to gawk at all the cars in the parking lot.
She'd never seen so many at once. I could really use a shower. The shuttle had less comfort than a submarine, although the views were better. Well, let's go straight home then. You can meet Rinza, and I know the girls are dying to see you. Justin's car looked like a beetle. Six wheels, six doors, painted in green and white stripes. He placed her bag in the back and waved her in. Lucy watched him sidelong to figure out the complicated straps and buckles interlacing over her chest. She'd never ridden in a car before. The vehicle thrummed like the shuttle and traveled almost as smoothly. When they hit the road, Lucy dropped all pretense and gawked. Land rolled in all directions like stormy swells sculpted from earth. So much of it. Every inch overgrown and blooming. Trees she almost recognized and giant scalloped mushrooms and leafy purple fronds big enough to wear. They zipped down an elevated road with a meter drop-off on either side. Lucy flinched, gripped the seat. We're on the outskirts of Ayaku, the capital city of this province. It's about two hours south to get to my house. Not the most scenic drive, I'm afraid, but it's the middle of nowhere, and you're catching the tail end of winter. It's spectacular, she said in a low voice. Moths as big as her hand flittered from treetop to treetop. Brooks crisscrossed the jungle, running beneath channels under the road. Occasionally, another car passed them from the other direction, and the windows trembled from the velocity. Over it all came the drip and patter of the ever-falling rain, sometimes thunderous on the windshield, sometimes gentle like kisses. Where's the glowfall? You don't really see it until evening. It's too bright at midday. Lucy's handheld buzzed in her pocket, reminding her to take her meds, but she was all out of stay alives. She thought it would be easier to tell Justin when she got there, but now that he sat beside her, close enough to touch, all her scripts dissolved. Justin lived in a tall house with a pointed roof. Houses on indigo reminded her of women at a costume ball, bright and many-layered and painted in scrolling curls. The asymmetrical roof sloped steeply, channeling the runoff down gutters into a creek that ran down the street past the other houses. They parked in the driveway, and immediately the front door flung open. Out came Renza and Justin's two teenage daughters, Nell and Zyanna, each with a huge umbrella. Somehow, they herded her inside without getting anything wet except Lucy's thin canvas shoes. Her teeth chattered anyway. It's colder than I'm used to, Lucy explained. Nell passed Lucy a round red blanket. How about I make us some glow tea? Justin asked. Lucy remembered gray lumps curdling in milk. I'm not sure I care for it, honestly. But you're supposed to make glow tea for company, Nell insisted, pulling Lucy to her feet again. We'll do it properly with new glow fall. Zyana and Nell brought her to the backyard. In the falling dark, the rain had become blue meteors. Zyana pressed a shallow ceramic bowl into her hands. Go collect some. Lucy held out the bowl and caught the storm. Glow beaded her bare arms in little constellations, cold and bright. She willed it into her pores, to her war-torn cells, imagined a mitochondrial truce, an exile of flus and viruses to the dark countries where no glow dwelled. It clung to the skin, more than regular water. The bowl glowed like a lamp. Lucy and the two girls bent over it, and their reflections shone back. When the glow-infused water bobbled to the bull's brim, Nell led them inside with tiny shuffling steps. Justin stirred a boiling pot in the kitchen. Something spicy and fragrant, like oranges and rose petals in anise. He strained it into five mugs, and Zyana topped them off with glow, ladled straight from the bowl. Lucy swirled her drink. The glow clung to itself like oil and felt soft and slippery on her tongue. The taste bit like raw chocolate, but the warmth filled her stomach. She shivered hard, curled her toes until chill passed. The second sip tasted sweeter. It's the glow enzymes, Rinza explained. They digest the tea compounds and it changes the flavor. When you've been here long enough, the symbiotes transform your palate. She wondered if she could carry glow home in her saliva, if it would hold back all sickness on violet too. She stepped around the wild hope carefully, 
because she knew it was more deadly than any storm. Better not imagine it at all. How long does the glow stay in your body? Lucy asked. Justin shrugged. You'll have to tell us when you get home. Lucy rolled around that word and came up with nothing. You were supposed to know in which direction your home lay. Even an orson bird and a squall knew that. The lack made her feel weightless, unmoored. In the absence of gravitational pull, there was no difference between flying and falling. In the following days, everything went wrong. Lucy overslept, so they missed their scheduled trip to the biofuel plant. Sage asked how her trip was going, and she sent him a picture of the fields from afar. Lake Radiance flooded, and Justin's favorite tea shop closed for renovations. Sage asked how she was feeling, and she ignored him, because she didn't want to think about sickness, not on her trip to Indigo. The itinerary dwindled line by line. It was too much for just a week. It was too little time. Lucy and her host stayed up late at night, talking about their lives and the books they've read and Lucy's music. She danced around some of Justin's questions. What happened when Derek left, or why she'd given up her music, or how she could be a courier forever when it was a job for the young. After Justin and Renza went to bed, Lucy lay awake in the dark with her hand held, watching the glowfall pelt the windows while she searched for tickets back to Violet. Exhaustion pressed down hard, perhaps normal fatigue, or perhaps the first signs of her mitochondrial death approaching. In the dark, she banged her arm against the bed frame hard and waited for the bruise. Just before she went to sleep, Sage emailed her a photo of Violet's sunrise and she flushed, realizing his emails had been piling up. Are you coming home? he asked, and the word prickled. Instead, she told him about the food and how he was right that indigo was an acquired taste, but once you had it, it stayed for life. I was afraid something happened to you when you didn't answer me the other day, Sage said, after a pause so long she thought he'd left for the day. I'm glad you're okay. Lucy recalled her own texts to Justin. The days his crazy itineraries had been her reason to go to work. She hadn't known Sage relied on her like that, too. Another stay alive. Sorry, they've been keeping me busy, but I'll bring you something back, she promised, and part of her wished she could take it back. Promises could save or they could snare. In the morning, Justin noticed the blue-black blotch on Lucy's arm. What happened there? His eyebrows crinkled over his glow tee. Rinza had gone to work. The girls tromped around upstairs, getting ready for the day. Lucy tugged down her sleeve to hide the bruise. I... Just hit a corner is all. Got disoriented when I woke up. His gaze pinned her. She met his eyes with great effort and found kindness. Lucy, I already know. About your ticket home, I mean, Justin said gently. She swallowed against the lump in her throat. How? After all these years, don't you think I know you pretty well? I put it together a long time ago. You don't have a ticket home. Not anymore. It happened around the time Derek left, and ever since you've been trying to make up for it. Lucy's ears burned. He'd known all along. She shivered, suddenly vulnerable, humiliated, exposed in this cold and foreign land. He reached out a hand, but she leaned away. I'm not going to burden you and Rinza. If I can't find a ticket, I've got enough money to make it for as long. She stuttered to a stop. For as long as I'm going to be here. He arched an eyebrow. You don't have enough for a 12-year stay. Lucy crisscrossed her arms, cupping the bruise in her hand. She tried on the words home and indigo, but the pull in her heart remembered sunrise and violet. She longed for indigo for years, but now that she'd arrived, it was like when the seasons changed and the orson birds flew the same course in reverse, called out and back and out again by more than one home. The pause drew out like an interlude between stanzas, music for those with the skill to read it. Justin touched her arm across the table, and the warmth of him diffused like glow tea. It was pictures of sunrise and flashing blue wings and falling stars, 
jokes and punchlines, time and space, and possibly bridged at long last in a dear friend's kitchen. You don't have to explain. You never had to, because it doesn't matter. The truth is, I bought a ticket too, years ago, because we promised we'd see each other, and that promise was half mine. It's yours now if you want it. Her last night on Indigo, Lucy cooked a violet meal for her hosts, cobbled together with many substitutions from what they found at the market. It tasted awful, but her friends were gracious about it. And anyway, sometimes you had to travel a long ways in order to try things properly. Or perhaps it was less about the meal and more about the company. The bruise on Lucy's arm was healing rapidly, like it had no time to waste. She cried the night before she left, privately. She emailed Sage about her travel plans, and he said he'd meet her when she got home. The drive to the shuttle port with Justin crawled, oppressed by a bored silence that masked deep dread, like planets about to part ways until their orbits crossed again. What could she possibly say to him? What could fill the years in distance and sustain them until they met again? Next time they saw each other, they'd be older. They would meet again for the first time. They'd wasted so much time being afraid of each other, getting used to the physicality of it all, the body language, the mannerisms. Maybe they would change too much in 12 years. Maybe the bruise would come back or she would be dead after all. You couldn't always count on things to last when even your mitochondria could betray you. But you had to make plans anyway and trust yourself to keep them. When they reached the outskirts of Ayaku, panic collapsed Lucy's facade. Maybe she should stay, make her home on Indigo among these wonderful, funny people with their umbrellas and their fascination with the sun. Maybe if she stayed, their world would heal her. Except healing never came that easily, not when even the good memories left you scarred with a longing for home. She would always need tickets or stay alives. Anything else meant death. I never sang you indigo blue, Lucy said suddenly. I promised you and I never did it. What she really meant was, I don't know how to say goodbye. Justin wove the car through traffic. The windows whooshed whenever someone passed them. Sing it now, a cappella and promise me the full version the next time you visit. And so she did. Lucy sang the stanzas, and Justin sang the pauses. The day gathered in her throat, and she ached for the weight of distance and time. Why did it hurt so bad to leave? Lucy tasted bitter glow tea on the back of her tongue. She swallowed it down. The day settled under her breastbone, and the bitterness became a warm, fragile glow. The glow lasted all the way home. It lasted when she debarked the shuttle, liked again on violet beneath the purple sky where hung Justin's star. The shuttle port was nearly empty, except for Sage, who met her with a long hug, this time unhesitating. These are for you, he said, pressing a tin of pills into her hand. I ripped you off. Please take them. Lucy didn't argue or try to explain how the glow stayed inside her and her secret hope she might live now. She took one of the stay alives because he needed to see her do it. Good to be missed, she said, and meant it. There's an errand I need to run, though. Meet you for coffee in half an hour? After Sage took off for the cafe, she circled back to the shuttle port. The ticket lines were deserted. Now that the pass had ended, they kept only one window open. The glow became a burn. Whatever the doctor might say next week, symbiosis had a cost. Homesickness could also be chronic. To endure it, you didn't need stay-alives. You needed tickets. Lucy swapped Sage's gift of pills at the ticket counter for a round-trip ticket to a future she couldn't picture yet. But Indigo would wait its turn. This was a season for Violet. For the first time since she got sick, she craved its promise. Lucy found her cycle, undisturbed, chained safely to its rack. And then the tears flowed, phosphorescent in the coming night. By their light, she tucked the new ticket into her pocket. 
12 years and no time at all. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Rachel. Rachel, what a story. Anybody wants to kind of just learn the writing craft or anything like that, great example there with this Indigo Blue. Well done, Jeremy. Spotting it as well. This story just made you want to to get to the destination, to get to Indigo. Do you know what I mean? It just, it, it just kept you wanting to go and, you know... Oh, very emotional, lovely story. Rachel, thank you so much for, for getting this on Starship Sova. And Jen, what can I say? It's all made all the while by you. Great voice, thank you so much. So, we are going to go into our very own Amy H. Sturgis and looking back at genre history, Ames. Hello, friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. As I record this, we're just a couple of days past May 25th, 2017, and that marks the 40th birthday of Star Wars. And so I want to say happy birthday, Star Wars. I was not there in the theaters on May 25th, but I was there that summer, and Star Wars has been a friend for the last 40 years and major part of my life. And it's particularly gratifying recognizing this anniversary, knowing that Star Wars is in such a vital and powerful place with such momentum behind it. In fact, if you don't mind my being just a bit self-involved at the moment, I would like to encourage you to check out the My Star Wars Story podcast that is mystarwarsstory.com. It is a podcast that offers an oral history of the Star Wars community, and that in and of itself is very important to me. Uh, You know I'm a historian. Well, I was also trained in oral history and for a couple of years worked with the Vanderbilt Oral History Project. And it means a lot to me to see that fandom is taking time to document and record for posterity the memories of people who have been involved in it and in its larger community. I think it's, I've made it pretty clear in past episodes, I I view science fiction as a conversation and I see it as a self-aware genre that intentionally builds on what came before and knows about what came before. And it I find it very heartening to see aspects and, and, and pockets and, you know, sub-communities of science fiction being aware of uh, their own pasts and making sure that history doesn't get lost. So I was a fan of my Star Wars story when it started. I still am. And I was particularly thrilled and honored to get to be the subject of episode 25, which just recently came out. So I would invite you to go check out the podcast. If you are a part of a community within science fiction that has its own history and its own story, and of course they all do, I would also encourage you to think about the ways in which you can, you know, record and, and document the history of that group. And of course, I would invite you in particular to check out episode 25, my episode of my Star Wars story, because it was a big thrill and honor for me to uh, be involved with that and to get to tell the story of my Star Wars journey, which continues this summer, actually, as I'm teaching, continuing to teach my university course, The Force of Star Wars, Examining the Epic, which brings me to my point today for the remainder of my segment here. I wanted to talk about something, A, that I forgot. (laughs) I knew I was going to forget something when I talked to my Star Wars story about my Star Wars story. And it's also an aspect of Star Wars that a lot of my students in my Star Wars class, even those who are big-time Star Wars fans don't know about. And so I thought I would both share this with you in the spirit of celebrating the 40th anniversary and also in the spirit of correcting my oversight and not mentioning this during the My Star Wars Story interview because it was a very big deal. And I'm talking about the Star Wars radio adaptation, which was broadcast by National Public Radio in 1981 as part of the NPR Playhouse. 
there ended up being three adaptations of the original Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. They came out in 81, 83, and 96, respectively. But the big one, the one that made the, the largest splash and the most important footprint in Star Wars history is that first one in 1981. There are several important aspects to the radio dramatization. First of all, U.S. radio drama was not in the same robust place, it, it still isn't, that, say, English radio drama was and is. There was a tremendous tradition of U.S. radio drama, but it really lost ground almost immediately after television became widespread in the country. I know today, for example, and for many years, uh, England has had the the ongoing phenomenon of adding to science fiction texts through radio drama. So things like Blake's Seven and Doctor Who, I myself have listened to and enjoyed very much. But really, that wasn't there as an obvious go-to place for U.S. audiences in the same way it was and is in England, or elsewhere, I should say. So it was a a phenomenon. It was a big deal. It was a surprise when, after The Empire Strikes Back came out in theaters in 1980, in 81, it was announced that there would be an adaptation of the original Star Wars story, what we now call Episode Four: A New Hope, on national public radio. It was made with the full cooperation of George Lucas. In fact, he sold all three of the adaptations, each for a dollar, giving the rights to KUSC-FM, which is the public radio affiliate at his alma mater, the University of Southern California, or USC. And he allowed the use of original sound effects and music from the movies to make it feel as much like Star Wars as possible. Now, to me, at nine years old, hearing John Williams' music was an instant identifier that this was Star Wars. But it also meant a lot that Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels reprised their roles as Luke Skywalker and C-3PO, respectively. You could already hear in Mark Hamill's performance the kind of talent that would go on to make him a major voice actor for decades. Hearing the Luke Skywalker speak, that was the big deal. Because for me, Star Wars was Luke Skywalker at that point. And it really didn't matter, as long as they were competent, (laughs) who was voicing Han Solo or uh, Leia Organa or anybody else, as long as I could hear Luke Skywalker. Although it's interesting to point out, That the voice of Han Solo was provided by actor Perry King. If you were in the U.S. and in my generation, you probably remember him from the television series Riptide. And Perry King, in fact, had auditioned for the role of Han Solo for the original Star Wars. There were also some other great voice performers in other roles and sex as Princess Leia And particularly, I should point out, Brock Peters as Darth Vader. He would go on to portray the father of Captain Ben Sisko in Deep Space Nine. So he got to be a major Star Wars and Star Trek father. But my point was that this entire adaptation had the seal of approval of George Lucas and Lucasfilm, and it felt like Star Wars. It was a 13-part radio serial, 5 hours, 57 minutes, and it retold the story of the original film. And when I sat around with my parents in front of the radio, and I had my cassette recorder there to, <laughs> to record it on cassette tapes, and I had, you know, lightning fingers prepared to flip that little cassette over and push record again because I wanted to go over this over and over again, which I did. I was expecting, essentially, the whole audio track of the film. I was just expecting to hear the film again. I didn't really think about the fact this was longer than the film was, but in fact it was. And so I was blown away. My little mind just destroyed when I discovered that 
from the very first episode, there was a lot more content. Now, some of that content came from material from earlier drafts of Lucas's scripts. So we get Luke Skywalker with his friends on Tatooine, and we get to meet Biggs Darklighter, and there's a, a desert race, and Luke sees the Star Destroyer battle in the sky, and things that, that were actually a part of the evolution of the Star Wars script, and even the shooting script, as Star Wars came together as a film. But there was also new material, new material written by science fiction author Brian Daly. Things like the backstory to Princess Leia's acquisition of the Death Star plans. This, of course, would be overwritten by the film Rogue One that came out in 2016. There was also the backstory of how Leia discusses the plans with her father, who isn't in this adaptation Bail Organa, but Instead, Prestor Organa. And there's a complete torture scene with Leia at the hands of Darth Vader. There is a scene between Jabba the Hutt and Han Solo. The list goes on and on and on. I can't begin to tell you how thrilling it was to hear new material added to that original story. And I wasn't the only one who was thrilled. This radio adaptation made history. Time magazine would say, radio drama is making a resounding comeback. There was a special NPR event at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles to debut the first episode. And ultimately, the drama brought a 40% increase in NPR audiences, 750,000 new listeners, essentially quadrupled NPR's youth audience. No one knew what the reception would be like. No one knew if this actually had legs. And in fact, it really, really did. And uh, as I pointed out, two more adaptations would follow, neither quite as successful or as powerful as the original, but all three of them are most definitely worth listening to. And you can access them through CDs, you can get them through Audible, lots of places now. These stories were considered canon for years. In fact, up until the Disney acquisition of Lucasfilm. And the 2014 announcement of the break between canonical materials and what are now called Legends materials. And before that period, the radio adaptations had been considered canon. Now they are considered to be Legends materials. And I don't have a big problem with that. Uh, of course, if we had kept the radio adaptation as canon, we wouldn't have had... Rogue One, for example, and Rogue One is now one of my very favorite Star Wars films, so I'm not going to argue with that. But for a time, it was canon, and it was very important to a, a full generation of listeners. And I've been very interested to learn my students' responses listening to this adaptation, particularly the reactions to how Leia's character was expanded and given added depth, and for that matter, strength in the additional material provided by Brian Daly in the script, and the performance by Anne Sachs. It's really difficult to convey, and I do realize I'm sounding old here. <laughs> That's okay. I earned it. Um, how important it was to get more content in an era when we couldn't expect the digital download of the film mere months after we'd seen it in the movie theaters, or we couldn't expect to be able to revisit our favorite texts over and over again almost immediately, to have full scenes, to have multiple hours more expansion of the original film, that was a very big deal. And again, because it was clearly marked as Star Wars through the Bedbert sound effects and the John Williams music and the voices of Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels, you really got the sense that this was legitimately more Star Wars. And it was just fantastic. And I know with absolute metaphysical certitude that I am not the only child who sat there with my cassette recorder making my own bootleg set 
night after night <laughs> for hours so that I could go back and listen again and again. And if you haven't heard all three of the adaptations, I would recommend them for the performances, for the added glimpses into what had been, for a time, canon. I should add that Billy D. Williams did voice Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back, and there were some other memorable turns. Even in Return of the Jedi, you have uh, John Lithgow as Yoda and... Ed Bagley Jr. as Boba Fett, and a particularly memorable Ed Asner as Jabba the Hutt. All three are great fun, and the first one is particularly outstanding. So, thank you very much for allowing me this segment of self-indulgence. If you are so inclined, please do check out my Star Wars Story podcast at mystarwarsstory.com or via iTunes. And for all of you who have been at any point a member of the Star Wars family, regardless of when and where it was that you joined, and whatever film or radio adaptation or book or game or television series drew you in, well, congratulations to us. And here's to another 40 years of Star Wars storytelling. I have something completely different on another topic up my sleeve for my next segment, so I look forward to joining you soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, what can I say? I put a link on the Amy site, all the links, and I'm sure Amy's got them all over there if you want to go and listen to them radio shows. I, I didn't even know they were out there, to be quite honest, so I'm going to try and track them down. And like I said at the beginning of the show, if it would have been me, I would have been recording them. I would have missed a few episodes. You know, when you're kind of sitting by the radio and you're pressing your little kind of plate and record or whatever it is to catch it. <gasps> Amy wouldn't. Amy would have all them, and she would have. I bet. I bet it's catalogued, and you know, series one, mm -mm, series, yeah, mm -hmm, episode two, yeah, it's all perfect. I need this little handwriting as well. <laughs> Mine will be a fucking mess, man. All over, all over. So, Ames, thank you so much. Great to look back at, like you say. Star Wars for me as well. I'm sure. You know, I don't know if I'm just getting muddled with time. Do you know what I mean? Bloody long time ago. But I thought I was there on the first day I ever came to Newcastle. My mum took us. And on the second film, I'm sure I was there as well. Not for the third. I think it was in the, within the week. But I'm sure that first two, the first day it opened. I'm sure of it. But it's there and it's, it, like you say, it's, it's, I'm going to track down those, um, those audiobooks. Or hopefully we can still listen to them. Radio shows. Aim, thank you so much. So that is show 489. I hope you enjoyed it. Big thank you to Rachel and Jen for kind of providing the story and the narration. Big thank you to Jeremy. You're a star, sir, picking that story. Thank you so much. And Ames, what can I say? Huge, huge thank you. So until next week, just like you say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. So I'm waiting on your call at home with no 
can't judge a book by its cover at the folio society we don't agree our beautiful books are all hardback and come with a slip case illustrations and gorgeous covers at the folio society we've something for everyone from pride and prejudice to dune charles darwin to a game of thrones if you love books you'll love folio the perfect gift order now at foliosociety.com and get ten dollars off when you use the promo code podcast conditions apply